Chapter 67, Part 2 of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 67, Part 2. It was on this fatal spot that, instead of finding a confederate fleet to second their operations, they were alarmed by the approach of Amurath himself, who had issued from his Magnesian solitude, and transported the forces of Asia to the defence of Europe. According to some writers, the Greek emperor had been awed or seduced to grant the passage of the Bosphorus, and an indelible stain of corruption is fixed on the Genoese, or the Pope's nephew, the Catholic admiral, whose mercenary connivance betrayed the guard of the Hellespont. From Adrianople, the sultan advanced by hasty marches at the head of sixty thousand men, and when the cardinal and Huniades had taken a nearer survey of the numbers and order of the Turks, these ardent warriors proposed the tardy and impracticable measures of a retreat. The king alone was resolved to conquer or die, and his resolution had almost been crowned with a glorious and salutary victory. The princes were opposite to each other in the centre, and the begler bigs, or generals of Anatolia and Romania, commanded on the right and left against the adverse divisions of the despot and Huniades. The Turkish wings were broken on the first onset, but the advantage was fatal, and the rash victors, in the heat of the pursuit, were carried away far from the annoyance of the enemy or the support of their friends. When Amurath beheld the flight of his squadrons, he despaired of his fortune and that of the empire. A veteran Janissary seized his horse's bridle, and he had magnanimity to pardon and reward the soldier who dared to perceive the terror and arrest the flight of his sovereign. A copy of the treaty, the monument of Christian perfidy, had been displayed in front of the battle, and it is said that the sultan in his distress, lifting his eyes and his hands to heaven, implored the protection of the God of truth, and called on the prophet Jesus himself to avenge the impious mockery of his name and religion. With inferior numbers and disordered ranks, the king of Hungary rushed forward in the confidence of victory, till his career was stopped by the impenetrable phalanx of the Janissaries. If we may credit the Ottoman annuals, his horse was pierced by the javelin of Amurad. He fell among the spears of the infantry, and the Turkish soldier proclaimed with a loud voice, Hungarians, behold the head of your king! The death of Ladislaus was the signal of their defeat. On his return from an intemperate pursuit, Huniades deplored his error and the public loss, he strove to rescue the royal body till he was overwhelmed by the tumultuous crowd of victors and vanquished, and the last efforts of his courage and conduct was exerted to save the remnant of his Wallachian cavalry. Ten thousand Christians were slain in the disastrous battle of Varna. The loss of the Turks, more considerable in numbers, bore a smaller proportion to their total strength, yet the philosophic sultan was not ashamed to confess that his ruin must be the consequence of a second and similar victory. At his command, a column was erected on the spot where Ladislaus had fallen. But the modest inscription, instead of accusing the rashness, recorded the valour and bewailed the misfortune of the Hungarian youth. Before I lose sight of the field of Varna, I am tempted to pause on the character and story of two principal actors, the Cardinal Julian and John Huniades. Julian Cesarini was born of a noble family in Rome, his studied had embraced both the Latin and Greek learning. Both the sciences of divinity and law 
and his versatile genius was equally adapted to the schools, the camp, and the court. No sooner had he been invested with the Roman purple, that he was sent into Germany to arm the empire against the rebels and heretics of Bohemia. The spirit of persecution is unworthy of a Christian. The military profession ill becomes a priest, but the former is excused by the times, and the latter was ennobled by the courage of Julian, who stood dauntless and alone in the disgraceful flight of the German host. As the Pope's legate, he opened the Council of Basel, but the President soon appeared, the most tenuous champion of ecclesiastical freedom, and an opposition of seven years was conducted by his ability and zeal. After promoting the strongest measures against the authority and person of Eugenius, some secret motive of interest or conscience engaged him to desert on a sudden the popular party. The cardinal withdrew himself from Basel to Ferrara, and, in the debates of the Greeks and Latins, the two nations admired the dexterity of his arguments and the depth of his theological erudition. In his Hungarian embassy, we have already seen the mischievous effects of his sophistry and eloquence, of which Julian himself was the first victim. The cardinal, who performed the duties of a priest and soldier, was lost in the defeat of Varna. The circumstances of his death are variously related, but it is believed that a weighty encumbrance of gold impeded his flight, and tempted the cruel avarice of some Christian fugitives. From a humble, or at least a doubtful origin, the merit of John Huniades promoted him to the command of the Hungarian armies. His father was a Wallachian, his mother a Greek, her unknown race might possibly ascend to the emperors of Constantinople, and the claims of the Wallachians, with the surname of Corvinus, from the place of his nativity, might suggest a thin pretense for mingling his blood with the patricians of ancient Rome. In his youth he served in the wars of Italy, and was retained with twelve horsemen by the bishop of Zagreb. The valour of the white knight was soon conspicuous. He increased his fortunes by a noble and wealthy marriage, and in defence of the Hungarian borders he won in the same year three battles against the Turks. By his influence, Ladislaus of Poland obtained the crown of Hungary, and the important service was rewarded by the title and office of Vyward of Transylvania. The first of Julian's crusades added two Turkish laurels to, on his brow, and in the public distress the fatal errors of Varna were forgotten. During the absence and minority of Ladislaus of Austria, the titular king, Huniades was elected supreme captain and governor of Hungary, and if envy at first was silenced by terror, a reign of twelve years supposes the arts of policy as well as of war. Yet the idea of a consummate general is not delineated in his campaigns. The white knight fought with the hand rather than the head, as the chief of desultory barbarians who attack without fear and fly without shame and his military life is composed of a romantic alternative of victories and escapes. By the Turks, who employed his name to frighten their perverse children, he was corruptly denominated Jankus Lain, or the Wicked. Their hatred is the proof of their esteem. The kingdom which he guarded was inaccessible to their arms, and they felt him most daring and formidable, when they fondly believed the captain and his country irrecoverably lost. Instead of confining himself to a defensive war, Four years after the defeat of Varna, he again penetrated into the heart of Bulgaria, and in the plain of Kosova, sustained till the third day the shock of the Ottoman army, four times more numerous than his own. As he fled alone through the woods of Wallachia, the hero was surprised by two robbers, but while they disputed a gold chain that hung at his neck, he recovered his sword, slew the one, terrified the other, and after new perils of captivity or death, consoled by his presence and afflicted kingdom. But 
the last and most glorious action of his life was the defence of Belgrade against the powers of Mahomet II in person. After a siege of forty days, the Turks, who had already entered the town, were compelled to retreat, and the joyful nations celebrated Hunyades and Belgrade as the bulwarks of Christendom. About a month after this great deliverance, the champion expired, and his most splendid epitaph is the regret of the Ottoman prince, who sighed that he could no longer hope for revenge against the single antagonist who had triumphed over his arms. On the first vacancy of the throne, Matthias Corvinus, a youth of eighteen years of age, was elected and crowned by the grateful Hungarians. His reign was prosperous and long. Matthias aspired to the glory of a conqueror and a saint, but his purest merit is the encouragement of learning, and the Latin orators and historians were invited from Italy by the sun, have shed the luster of their eloquence on the father's character. In the list of heroes, John Huniades and Skanderbeg are commonly associated, and they are both entitled to our notice, since their occupation of the Ottoman army delayed the ruin of the Greek Empire. John Castriot, the father of Skanderbeg, was the hereditary prince of a small district of Epirus or Albania, between the mountains and the Adriatic Sea. Unable to contend with the sultan's power, Castriot submitted to the hard conditions of peace and tribute. He delivered his four sons as the pledges of his fidelity, and the Christian youths, after receiving the marks of circumcision, were instructed in the Mahometan religion and trained in the arms and arts of Turkish policy. The three elder brothers were confounded in the crowd of slaves, and the poison to which their deaths are ascribed cannot be verified or disproved by any positive evidence. Yet the suspicion is in great measure removed by the kind and paternal treatment of George Castriot, the fourth brother, who, from his tender youth, displayed the strength and spirit of a soldier. The successive overthrow of a Tartar and two Persians, who carried a proud defiance to the Turkish court, recommended him to the favour of Amurat, and his Turkish appellation of Skanderbeg, Iskenderbeg, or the Lord of Alexander, is an indelible memorial of his glory and servitude. His father's principality was reduced into a province, but the loss was compensated by the rank and title of Sanjiak, a commander of five thousand horse, and the prospect of the first dignities of the empire. He served with honor in the wars of Europe and Asia, and we may smile at the art or credulity of the historian, who supposes that in every encounter he spared the Christians, while he fell with a thundering arm on his Mussulman foes. The glory of Huniades is without reproach. He fought in the defense of his religion and country, but the enemies who applaud the patriot have branded his rival with the name of traitor and apostate. In the eyes of the Christian, the rebellion of Skanderbeg is justified by his father's wrongs. The ambiguous death of his three brothers, his own degradation, and the slavery of his country, and they adore the generous, though tardy, zeal with which he asserted the faith and the dependence of his ancestors. But he had imbibed from his ninth year the doctrines of the Koran. He was ignorant of the gospel. The religion of a soldier is determined by authority and habit. Nor is it easy to conceive what new illumination at the age of forty could be poured into his soul. His motives would be less exposed to the suspicion of interest or revenge, had he broken his chain from the moment that he was sensible of its weight. But a long oblivion had surely impaired his original right, and every year of obedience and reward had cemented the mutual bond of the sultan and his subject. If Skanderbeg had long harboured the belief of Christianity and the intentional revolt, 
a worthy mind must condemn the base dissimulation that could serve only to betray that could promise only to be forsworn that could actively join in the temporal and spiritual perdition of so many thousands of his unhappy brethren shall we praise a secret correspondence with hunyades while he commanded the vanguard of the turkish army shall we excuse the desertion of his standard a treacherous desertion which abandoned victory to the enemies of his benefactor in the confusion of a defeat the eye of skanderbeg was fixed on the race effendi or principal secretary with the dagger at his breast he extorted a firman or patent for the government of albania and the murder of the guileless scribe and his train prevented the consequences of an immediate discovery with some bold companions to whom he had revealed his design he escaped in the night by rapid marches from the field of battle to his paternal mountains the gates of croya were open to the royal mandate and no sooner did he command a fortress than george castriot dropped the mask of dissimulation abjured the prophet and the sultan and proclaimed himself the avenger of his family and country the names of religion and liberty provoked a general revolt the albanians a martial race were unanimous to live and die with their hereditary prince and the ottoman garrisons were indulged in the choice of martyrdom or baptism in the assembly of the states of epirus skanderbeg was elected general of the turkish war and each of the allies engaged to furnish his respective proportion of men and money from these contributions from his patrimonial estate and from the valuable salt pits of selina he drew an annual revenue of two hundred thousand ducats and the entire sum exempt from demands of luxury was strictly appropriated to public use his manners were popular but his discipline was severe and every superfluous vice was banished from his camp his example strengthened his command and under his conduct the albanians were invincible in their own opinion and that of their enemies the bravest adversaries of france and germany were allured by his fame and retained in his service his standing militia consisted of eight thousand horse and seven thousand foot the horses were small the men were active but he viewed with a discerning eye the difficulties and resources of the mountains and at the blaze of the beacons the whole nation was distributed in the strongest posts with such unequal arms skanderbeg resisted twenty-three years the powers of the ottoman empire and two conquerors amurat the second and his greater son were repeatedly baffled by a rebel whom they pursued with seeming contempt and implacable resentment at the head of sixty thousand horse and forty thousand janissaries amurat entered albania he might ravage the open country occupy the defenceless towns convert the churches into mosques circumcise the christian youths and punish with death his adult and obstinate captives but the conquests of the sultan were confined to the petty fortress of svetigrad and the garrison invincible to his arms were oppressed by a paltry artifice and a superstitious scruple amurata retired with shame and loss from the walls of croya the castle and residence of the castriots the march the siege the retreat were harassed by a vexatious and almost invincible adversary and a disappointment might tend to embitter perhaps to shorten the last days of the sultan in the fullness of conquest mahomet the second still felt at his bosom this domestic thorn his lieutenants were permitted to negotiate a truce and the albanian prince may justly be praised as a firm and able champion of his natural independence the enthusiasm of chivalry and religion has ranked him with the names of alexander and pyrrhus nor would they blush to acknowledge their intrepid countrymen but his narrow dominion and slender powers 
must leave him at an humble distance below the heroes of antiquity, who triumphed over the East and the Roman legions. His splendid achievements, the Bashos whom he encountered, the armies that he discomfited, and the three thousand Turks who were slain by his single hand, must be weighted in the scales of suspicious criticism. Against an illiterate enemy, and in the dark solitude of Epirus, his partial biographers may safely indulge the latitude of romance, but their fictions are exposed by the light of Italian history, and they afford a strong presumption against their own truth by a fabulous tale of his exploits, when he passed the Adriatic with eight hundred horse to the succor of the king of Naples. Without disparagement to his fame, they might have owned that he was finally oppressed by the Ottoman powers. In his extreme danger he applied to Pope Pius II for a refuge in the ecclesiastical state, and his resources were almost exhausted, since Skanderbeg died a fugitive at Lissus on the Venetian territory. His sepulchre was soon violated by the Turkish conquerors, but the Janissaries, who wore his bones encased in a bracelet, declared by this superstitious amulet their involuntary reverence for his valour. The instant ruin of his country may redound to the hero's glory, yet, yet, had he balanced the consequences of submission and resistance, a patriot perhaps would have declined the unequal contest, which must depend on the life and genius of one man. Skanderbeg might indeed be supported by the rational, though fallacious hope that the Pope, the King of Naples, and the Venetian Republic would join in the defence of a free and Christian people, who guarded the sea-coast of the Adriatic, and a narrow passage from Greece to Italy. His infant son was saved from the national shipwreck. The Castriots were invested with a Neapolitan dukedom, and their blood continues to flow in the noblest families of the realm. A colony of Albanian fugitives obtained a settlement in Calabria, and they preserve at this day the language and manners of their ancestors. In the long career of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, I have reached at last the last reign of the princes of Constantinople, who so feebly sustained the name and majesty of the Caesars. On the decease of John Paleologus, who survived about four years the Hungarian crusade, the royal family, by the death of Andronicus and the monastic profession of Isidore, was reduced to three princes, Constantine, Demetrius, and Thomas, the surviving sons of the Emperor Manuel. Of these, the first and the last were far distant in the Morea, but Demetrius, who possessed the domain of Celebria, was in the suburbs, at the head of a party. His ambition was not chilled by the public distress, and his conspiracy with the Turks and the Schismatics had already disturbed the peace of his country. The funeral of the late emperor was accelerated with singular and even suspicious haste. The claim of Demetrius to the vacant throne was justified by a trite and flimsy sophism, that he was born in the purple, the eldest son of his father's reign. But the emperor's mother, the senate, and soldiers, the clergy and people, were unanimous in the cause of the lawful successor, and the despot Thomas, who, ignorant of the change, accidentally returned to the capital, asserted with becoming zeal the interest of his absent brother. An ambassador, the historian Franza, was immediately dispatched to the court of Adrianople. Amurat received him with honour and dismissed him with gifts, but the gracious approbation of the Turkish sultan announced his supremacy, and the approaching downfall of the Eastern Empire. By the hands of two illustrious deputies, the imperial crown was placed at Sparta on the head of Constantine. In the spring he sailed from the Morea, escaped the encounter of a Turkish squadron, enjoyed the acclamations of his subjects, celebrated the festival of a new reign, and exhausted by his donatives the treasure, or rather the indigence, of the state. 
The emperor immediately resigned to his brothers the possession of the Maria, and the brittle friendship of the two princes, Demetrius and Thomas, was confined in their mother's presence by a frail security of oaths and embraces. His next occupation was the choice of a concert. The daughter of the Doge of Venice had been proposed, but the Byzantine nobles objected the distance between a hereditary monarch and an elective magistrate, and in their subsequent distress, the chief of that powerful republic was not unmindful of the affront. Constantine afterwards hesitated between the royal families of Trebizond and Georgia, and the embassy of Franza represents in his public and private life the last days of the Byzantine Empire. The Provestiar, or Great Chamberlain, Franza sailed from Constantinople as the minister of a bridegroom, and the relics of wealth and luxury were applied to his pompous appearance. His numerous retinue consisted of nobles and guards, of physicians and monks. He was attended by a band of music, and the term of his costly embassy was protected above two years. On his arrival in Georgia or Iberia, the natives from the towns and villages flocked around the strangers, and such was their simplicity that they were delighted with the effects, without understanding the cause, of musical harmony. Among the crowd was an old man, above a hundred years of age, who had formerly been carried away a captive by the barbarians, and who amused his hearers with the tale of the wonders of India, from whence he had returned to Portugal by an unknown sea. From this hospitable land, Franza proceeded to the court of Trebizond, where he was informed by the Greek prince of the recent disease of Amarat. Instead of rejoicing in the deliverance, the experienced statesman expressed his apprehension that an ambitious youth would not long adhere to the sage and pacific system of his father, after the sultan's decease, his Christian wife, Maria, the daughter of the Serbian despot, had been honorably restored to her parents. On the fame of her royal beauty and merit, she was recommended by the ambassador as the most worthy object of the royal choice. And Franza recapitulates and refutes the specious objections that might be raised against the proposal. The majesty of the purple, with a noble and unequal alliance, the bar of affinity might be removed by liberal alms and the dispensation of the church, the disgrace of Turkish nuptials had been repeatedly overlooked, and though the fair Maria was nearly fifty years of age, she might yet hope to give an heir to the empire. Constantine listened to the advice, which was transmitted in the first ship that sailed from Trebizond, but the factions of the court opposed his marriage, and it was finally prevented by the pious vow of the sultana, who ended her days in the monastic profession. Reduced to the first alternative, the choice of Franza was decided in favor of a Georgian princess and the vanity of her father was dazzled by the glorious alliance. Instead of demanding, according to the primitive and national custom, a prize for his daughter, he offered a portion of fifty-six thousand, with an annual pension of five thousand ducats, and the services of the ambassador were repaid by an assurance that, as his son had been adopted in baptism by the emperor, the establishment of his daughter should be the peculiar care of the empress of Constantinople. On the return of Pranza, the treaty was ratified by the Greek monarch, who with his own hand impressed three vermilion crosses on the golden bull, and assured the Georgian envoy that in the spring his galleys would conduct the bride to her imperial palace. But Constantine embraced his faithful servant, not with the cold approbation of a sovereign, but with the warm confidence of a friend, who, after a long absence, is impatient to pour his secrets into the bosom of his friend. Since the death of my mother and of Cantatsuini, who alone advised me without interest or passion. I am surrounded, said the emperor, 
by men whom I can neither love, nor trust, nor esteem. You are not a stranger to Lucas Notaras, the great admiral, obstinately attached to his own sentiments. He declares, both in private and public, that his sentiments are the absolute measure of my thoughts and actions. The rest of the courtiers are swayed by their personal or factitious views. And how can I consult the monks on the questions of policy in marriage? I have yet much employment for your diligence and fidelity. In the spring you shall engage one of my brothers to solicit the succor of the western powers. From the Morea you shall sail to Cyprus on a particular commission, and from thence proceed to Georgia to receive and conduct the future empress. Your commands, replied Franza, are irresistible. But deign, great sir, he added, with a serious smile, to consider that if I am thus perpetually absent from my family, my wife may be tempted either to seek another husband, or throw herself into a monastery. After laughing at his apprehensions, the emperor more gravely consoled him by the pleasing assurances that this should be his last service abroad, and that he destined for his son a wealthy and noble heiress. For himself, the important office of great logotate or principal minister of state. The marriage was immediately stipulated, but the office, however incompatible with his own, had been usurped by the ambition of the admiral. Some delay was requisite to negotiate a consent and an equivalent, and the nomination of Franza was half declared and half suppressed, lest it might be displeasing to an insolent and powerful favourite. The winter was spent in the preparations of his embassy, and Franza had resolved that his young son should embrace this opportunity of foreign travel, and be left, on the appearance of danger, with his maternal kindred of the Maria. Such were the private and public designs, which were interrupted by a Turkish war, and finally buried in the ruins of the empire. End of chapter 67, part 2 Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland